Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Eric Maisel. Eric is the author of more than 50 books on creativity and personal growth, including the most recent, The Power of Daily Practice. Widely regarded as America's foremost creativity coach, he is a retired family therapist and a noted leader in the movement known as critical psychology. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. I'm delighted to have you here. Great to be with you, Ursula. Lovely to be here. So, In your book, which uh, I was just uh, saying to you, I really enjoyed reading it. First, I have I've had a daily practice for a long time, and you've completely shifted my perspective on that. So, oh no, (laughs) in a good way, in a good way. (laughs) So, um, one of the things you said was that folks find it hard to do the things they would like to do. And then you also said they find it particularly difficult to do the things they would really like to do. So why is that? That seems counterintuitive. Well, I think uh, writing a novel is harder than turning on the television. Um, living your life purposes is a harder thing than getting things checked off our daily to-do list. Let me back up a second. Um, I have certain views about life, one of which is that there isn't a purpose to life, but rather there are life purpose choices. Mm -hmm. The things we decide are important. Most people haven't even done that step in life that is identified what's really important to them. That's kind of a first step in my mind. But once you've identified what's important to you, then you have the task of actually getting those things on your daily to-do list. And most people don't organize their daily to-do list around their life purposes or around what's most important to them. Mm -hmm. They organize it around errands and tasks and responsibilities and day jobs and all the usual stuff. So when I write about uh, daily practice, I'm really inviting people to think about how to live their life purposes once they've identified their life purposes. Hmm. I think that's so true what you just said. I a lot of the work I do is helping people become very conscious about what is important to them and therefore you can as you said organize your time around that and I I was intrigued by uh, and you talk about this multiple times in the book uh, about kirism which is a philosophy of life that you've developed and you talk about life purposes plural rather than just life purpose and we hear so much now about find your purpose and you know everything will be easy and easy breezy so talk about life purposes and why why more than one <laughs> well There's no life purpose to find. There are only our life purpose choices. That's my belief system. Mm. And that's what I incorporate into the philosophy of life I've been developing called charism. So let me say a few things about it. We've been sold this metaphor or analogy for thousands of years, the idea of seeking the purpose of life or that there is a singular purpose to life. 
I think most modern people or postmodern people don't actually believe that, even though they may still cling to the idea that there is a particular purpose to life. I think most of us know that we're kind of just excited matter and we're here because the universe could excite us into existence, <laughs> but that the universe doesn't have a purpose for us. We have to make our decisions about how we want to stand up and how we want to hold ourselves responsible. What I'm really talking about is a kind of updated existentialism. Right. In the 1950s and 1960s, the existential writers of that time started writing about personal responsibility, which was something new to write about in philosophy. Mm. Religions and philosophies hadn't talked really about personal responsibility, but rather about obligations to all sorts of things right. rather than self-obligation. So I'm talking about an updated view of that, and I have the same feelings about meaning, that meaning isn't something that is out there. There isn't something that's objectively meaningful. Rather, there are psychological experiences of meaning. There are things that we experience as meaningful. And we might, might, we might not experience the same thing as meaningful twice in a row. It might be, you know, we might sit at a lecture and it might seem very interesting to us. And the next time we hear that guy or gal speak, not interesting at all. That's how meaning actually works. Parenthetically, that means that folks should not be upset if meaning comes and goes. That's that's what, just like any experience, we shouldn't be upset if joy comes and goes or anger comes and goes. We should expect experiences to come and go. So one of the things that I try to teach is less reliance on the desire to have life feel meaningful. Just live your life purposes, show up. And if by accident you coax the experience of meaning out of that those activities, that's a blessing, that's a bit of luck, but it really is a bit of luck because we can't guarantee the experience of meaning. Mm. I, yeah, I'm so intrigued by that. I, I I was struck in the book about how existential the the, the perspective was on, um, especially around meeting, uh, meaning. And um, one of the things you, you said was uh, aim for meaning, but don't crave meaning. So what do you mean by that? Well, we, as our species wants meaningful experiences, we, we, crave, we crave them, but we shouldn't crave them. Even though it's built into us to crave them, we should have a more adult, sophisticated understanding of what our, we want our life to be like. And what, our, what we want our life to be like is we want to make ourselves proud by our efforts. So for me, what seems important in life is showing up to whatever we've decided are our life purposes. If meaning is merely a psychological experience, then we shouldn't crave it that much and we shouldn't worry about it. Let me give you a simple example. Let's say mm -hmm. that you're working on a novel and for 200 consecutive days, all you're experiencing is the hardness of the work, that you're not, feel, that you're not feeling that the enterprise of writing the novel is meaningful. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to talk yourself out of getting down right? because it may not feel meaningful to write that novel or take another example in these political times. Let's say that you're an activist for some cause. Well, maybe your job this week is, you know, making phone calls or licking envelopes, so to speak, or sending emails. That activity may just bore you or maybe you may find it difficult. You may not be a public speaker and you may not really want to be making those phone calls, et cetera, et cetera. There may be many reasons why the work you're doing doesn't feel meaningful, but you want to not care 
that it's not feeling meaningful. You want to feel proud that you're doing exactly what you ought to be doing. One of the examples I always use, this sticks in my mind as a analogy, is that in, in the days before the invasion, before D-Day, we just don't care what Eisenhower is thinking or feeling with respect to his own feelings. We just want him to get the invasion done well. Mm. And we don't usually look at our own life that way, like we're you know, getting ready for a D-Day. But I do think that that's a step in the right direction for our species to think that our own activities are that valuable, that we matter in that way. And once we begin to think that we matter in that way, then we understand that our job is to do the things that are important. And if by chance, we also experience some sense of meaning from doing that work, that's just a lucky outcome. Hmm. Well, I, I know one of the tenets of Kirism is live as if you matter. And um, that's something I talk about quite a bit. And uh, I, I believe people do matter. And, uh, but I, I get your point, living that way is a way to experience at meaning at times and, and uh, joy and all of the other things that go along with the, that's right. The at human times. experience. That's yeah. Exactly right. At times. Yeah. And uh, one of the ideas in curism is the idea of absurd rebellion, which is another idea lifted largely from existentialism that it's absurd to think that we really matter because we know that we're just passing, coming and going. But by the same token, we can conceive of how we do matter. We can matter to one other person. We can matter in some small ways and some people matter in big ways. Um, we care about the, 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 the Churchills and, and Roosevelt's. They matter and we need them to stand in opposition to the, the Hitlers and Stalins. So we need big mattering by individuals and we also need our, so to speak, small mattering, the, the ways in which we hold our child's hand crossing the street or hug a friend or say something nice to a sibling or what have you. In all of those ways, we can decide to matter and then do the work that's associated with that mattering. Mm. Well, I, that brings up for me this idea of self-authorship and it's one of the practices that you talk about in the book. And so what does it mean to develop a practice around self-authorship, for example, I, I think of it as important because if there's one thing that entrepreneurs are, and that's mainly the audience for this podcast, is that entrepreneurs want to author their own lives. They want to author their own work at the very least. And it, it has far-reaching uh, implications when you choose that life. So what's a, how can you cultivate uh, a practice of self-authorship? Well, there's a lot to say about that. Um, I do a lot of writing in the authoritarian wounding area. That is, people who have been wounded by family authoritarians, family bullies, mm. family dictators. And there's a lot of that that has gone on and that goes on. Uh, pundits who write in that area believe that as many as 25% of the population is authoritarian. So an awful lot of people mm. have had to be in close contact with an authoritarian. And that has lifelong consequences one of which is that it's harder to make choices, harder to make decisions, harder to believe in one's own ideas and opinions. So there's a lot of, in my language, personal upgrade work needed by most human beings so that they 
become the person they need to be in order to accomplish the things they want to accomplish. You may have a clear idea about what you want to accomplish, but not be the person equal to doing that work. So in my language, we'll just run through it a little bit. I have the vision of personality being made up of three constituent parts. Mm-hmm. Original personality, that's how we come into the world. And anybody who's had you know, kittens or puppies or kids knows that every creature comes into the world itself already somebody. Psychology, psychiatry pays no attention to that, but we all know that we, we, we were already somebody at birth with all kinds of proclivities and what have you. Then the second part I call formed personality. That's the way we stiffen over time, how we become repetitive and sort of unable to make change. And then the third part I call available personality. That's our remaining freedom to be the person we want to be. And so in my vision of upgrading personality, it's really using our available personality, which I kind of conceive of as an amount that fluctuates over time, using our available personality to reclaim some of our formed personality and become the person we want to be. I think a simple example of how this model works is if you're an actively, if you're actively an addict and running around town looking for your next fix, you don't have a lot of available personality available. You don't have a lot of freedom at that moment. You're right. caught in the vice grip of that addiction. Mm-hmm. The second you enter recovery, the second you try to be sober and clean, you have more personality available. You don't have 100%. You didn't change overnight to become a completely different person, but you have more available personality available. That's what I mean when I think of it as a kind of fluctuating amount. And so there are lots of edges for prospective entrepreneurs, lots of things that they don't find easy to do, whether it's taking a certain kind of risk or public speaking or reaching out into the world and and sending an email or asking for what they want or getting what they want and asking for more. Lots of things that um, entrepreneurs or prospective entrepreneurs aren't able to do And all of them, from my point of view, can be done if they engage in this thing I'm calling a personality upgrade. Well, I I was really intrigued by that because, you know, so many people read self-help books where uh, people are on this path of self-improvement. And that in itself has a bit of a derogatory meaning in the sense that you're not good enough as you are and therefore you must change yourself in order to become acceptable. I think that thread kind of carries through uh, the self-help movement, but this personality upgrade um, approach or or perspective is really around who you want to be versus who you have to be in order to get what you want. Uh, And it's being being truthful because everybody can identify those edges, those places where they don't want to do something or can't really do something yet. I train creativity coaches. I've been doing that for 20 years. And one of the things I demand of the people I train is that they get clear on whether they really want clients or not. Everybody's going to pay lip service to, sure, I want clients. That's why I'm doing this. Right. An awful lot of folks don't actually want clients because they're not sure they're equal to dealing with the clients. They're not sure they know what to say. They're not sure they want to be responsible for another human being, et cetera. So that's one of the things an entrepreneur has to be clear about is whether they really want to do the work that they claim they want to do. Very high percent of coaches, people who train to be coaches, maybe 99% of them never see a single client. Wow. 
Yeah, I know it's a kind of an amazing thought, but I think yeah. that's pretty true. Huh. The, the biggest coach federation, the ICF International Coast Federation, once put out that kind of statistic. And, and the statistic was that the modal number of clients that the typical ch coach saw was zero. <laughs> wow. And it really shouldn't surprise us when we think that the world's number one phobia is public speaking. Mm -hmm. People really want to stay more hidden than they understand they want to stay. And this is not, a, it's not about extroversion or introversion, but it's about safety. A lot of people don't actually feel safe in the world, maybe for childhood experience reasons or for other reasons, but we have to figure out how to take the risks that we need to take in order to do the work that we say we want to do. Well, that uh, strikes me as very profound because it's not just coaching, but it's any form of work where you're, the, where the necessity or expectation is that you reveal yourself. And in the current societal climate, that seems to be pretty much every kind of work um, other than the, the highly intellectual work. So um, seems to be a kind of a universal issue that people are dealing with. And I think in social media too, people are, are in a way you're, uh, there's an expectation that you'll share something vulnerable or um, in order to be, to be really uh, an influencer on social media. So there's a real uh, tension there between uh, what you're supposedly supposed to do and the safety issues that you just talked about. Yep. And it also takes a lot of our mind space and time to deal with things like rejection and criticism and pushback mm -hmm. and the yeah. things that, that the world can provide. Um, when I, again, train coaches or talk about my, my journey, one of the things that I make clear is that in writing these 50 books now, I've never replied to a single criticism. Wow. That's discipline. <laughs> in my whole life, because I, I know that those are rabbit holes. The, the other person on the other side probably has all the time in the world to keep the conversation going and to make clear to me how I did something wrong. I'm not interested in going mm -hmm. down those rabbit holes. If you understand what's important in your own life, then you won't go down those rabbit holes because you know that going down a rabbit hole like that is stealing time from your important work. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I've heard other authors talk about this as well. Brene Brown talks about, you know, being willing to be in the arena and um, she just doesn't engage with people who aren't willing to do that. So what you're talking about is a, a form of that really. It is, and, especially, and just to, to go to a, a little sideways, if you're a memoir writer, this is one of the things that you have to get clear on, or you'll never get your memoir written. Most memoir, memoir writers will say, uh, it's clear in my own heart and my own mind that I, that I want to share my truth, and I don't mind what pushback may be coming from my family or from the world. They say that, but they only one quarter mean it. And the proof of it is that it's taking them five years or seven years or 14 years or 20 years to write their memoir. Right. They're, they're stuck in the censorship place. So what I suggest to them is to really make a list, a pretty clear list of those things that they think they can live with sharing and those things they can't live with sharing and then share the things they can share and not share the things they can't share. Mm -hmm. Sort of straightforwardly make decisions so much of what I think about our work in life is about making decisions. It's not about making right decisions. We don't have the power to know what's the right decision. 
It's about making decisions. By the way, one of the reasons the creative process produces so much anxiety in most people is that the creative process is literally making one choice after another, making one decision after another. Send the character to Paris, send the character to Zanzibar, put the comma in, take the comma out. Creative folks don't realize the extent to which creativity is a decision-making process, moment mm -hmm. by moment. And since decision-making provokes anxiety, that's one of the reasons people flee the encounter. That's why would-be creators flee the encounter. They can't face all that decision-making. I love that view of creativity being a decision-making process because it's true. And, and what you talk about in the ways that you can get hung up in that uh, creative process is... Um, uh, that's such a valuable way to look at it. And it seems like becoming conscious of the fact that you have, you have a decision to make is a good interim step. I mean, uh, if, if not a necessary one. It is. It's really, it's really important. And it speaks to why showing up and doing the work is so important and not attaching to outcomes. People would like a guarantee that the thing they're working on is going to turn out well. Everybody wants yeah. that guarantee and they yeah. can't have it. But beyond that, not only can't they have the guarantee, much of their work will not be good. It's hard for people to hear this, but how many of Bob Dylan's million songs are wonderful? 30, 40. It's right. always only a percentage of the whole. Anybody you can think of, any great artist, only three of their 36 things are hits or masterpieces all the rest are ordinary or worse than ordinary. And that's mm. the greatest people. Yeah. Well, and go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, but it, it's hard for folks to, to really, they get it intellectually. Everybody gets intellectually what I'm saying. Yeah. Viscerally, it's hard to get the idea that this thing that you may be spending two years on may ultimately not work. Most people at the end of those two years, if their book doesn't work, are going to say, I have no talent. I'm an idiot. What was I thinking? I shouldn't be a writer, etc. Right. Virtually none of them are going to say, oh, process. This is one of my books that didn't work on to the next one. Mm. Yeah. And it takes such courage to move on like that and just take it as part of the process rather than, oh my God, I've just spent the last two years working on this book and now I, I'm, not, I'm not prepared to publish it. It's what I'm Anne Lamott sure, talks. Way, I'm not sure if it takes courage or if it takes maturity. Mm. I, I, I think it, just creative folks just don't have a lot of clarity about the creative, about the realities of the creative process, because we have such a smiley face culture that, that makes, you know, I honor the creative process sound like an easy thing. And, you know, it's right. so easy to honor the, there's nothing at all easy about honoring the creative process, because honoring the creative process means doing a lot of work that never turns out well. And, and most people are just not familiar with this idea. Once they get it, I think they can settle in, courageous or not, they can just settle into an acceptance that only a percentage of what they do is going to be what they wish it would be. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, it's what Lamant, Anne Lamott talks about as the shitty first draft. You have to be prepared to write badly, in her case, writing. But to do whatever it is, you do creative let me, let me, badly. Let me, dis let me dispute that a tiny bit because okay. that, that metaphor suggests that the final thing will be good. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a willingness to write a shitty first draft. It's a willingness to write one shitty book after another until you write a good book. 
Mm. That's different. And that's harder to tolerate, but that's the truth of the matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I see your point. Well, uh, this kind of all circles around a, a concept of, uh, of self-authorship. And um, you talk about that in the book in one of the practices. So it seems, um, I mean, we've, we've touched on that as, as being core to an entrepreneurial life. But right now, I think there's, because of the pandemic and the anxiety that people feel, which is, you know, a, a challenge to setting up a daily practice, it, it, you know, comes into conflict with that. How do you, how do you deal with having a kind of a mindset that helps you move past the anxiety and, and distractions and, and get things well, first, done? First, let me say that there are an awful lot of people who are more disappointed in themselves than ever before which is a sad thing, but a true mm. thing. And that is that there are a lot of creative people who now got this time, suddenly got time and still aren't doing their creative work because mm -hmm. they're just too upset internally and too anxious. Mm. So now they're more down on themselves than ever. So that's just one of the unfortunate realities of this moment is that those folks who have received time as the sort of crazy gift are not using it very well because they're just too distracted. So in terms of what to do, the first thing is to think thoughts that serve you. And I say that in a very specific way. This is not about true thoughts or false thoughts, but being very, very careful to only think thoughts that serve you because many true thoughts don't serve us to think. What do I mean by that? Let's say you walk into a bookstore in the days when you could walk into a bookstore when you were free, free to be out and about. Yeah. Let's say you walked into a bookstore and, and you're a writer and you heard yourself say, wow, there are a lot of writers out there. You saw all those books and that's what you said to yourself. Mm -hmm. That's a true thought that there are a lot of writers out there, but it's not a thought that serves you to be thinking. That kind of thought is going to prevent you from writing. Maybe not today, but three days from now, you're going to stop writing and you won't know what happened and when you stopped writing because in your body somewhere, you felt all of that competition, all of these other writers writing. So that's the number one thing to do is to hold in mind that idea. I'm only going to think thoughts that serve me. And the three-step process there to do that is to hear what you're saying to yourself, which is an act of courage because we're pretty tricky creatures and we don't want to hear what we're saying to ourselves. Hear what you're saying to yourself Dispute those utterances that don't serve you and substitute more affirmative language. It's, it's easy to say people don't spend enough time doing such things, but were they, and because we're tricky creatures, we have to really hear what we're saying because what we're saying may sound like I'm tired or I'm busy, but what we're meaning is I don't want to write my novel. Mm. So we have, to, we have to be able to deconstruct the language that sounds so familiar, like I'm tired or I'm busy. Right. And we have to say that we have to begin to say things like I'm tired, but I can spend 20 minutes on my novel or I'm busy, but I can spend 20 minutes on my, my new business that I'm trying to build. Mm -hmm. We have to insert that big but, that big B-U-T, or else we'll allow that language, that everyday language of tiredness and busyness to stop us from getting to the things we want to get to. So A is the cognitive piece of thinking thoughts that serve us. And B is having anxiety management tools that work. Everybody understands that they're anxious 
and virtually no one has actually constructed anxiety management tools that work for them. They work in the moment. Some people know how to get more calm in the morning during their meditation practice, but that's not particularly portable. So if later in the day, you know, you have to do some business related task that makes you anxious, that meditation practice from the morning, is not gonna help you all that much. What you need is an anxiety management tool or tools to use right in that moment, some calming ritual, something that you know to do. And I have, I have a book on this called Mastering Creative Anxiety, which has maybe 20 categories of things to try. So there are plenty of things to try, breathing things, thinking things, somatic things, all kinds of things. But most people don't take the time to actually master one or two anxiety management strategies. If you think thoughts that serve you and if you master anxiety, then you're just in that much better position to get the things done that you want to get done. Well, and I think that's particularly important right now. And, uh, but it's really an ongoing thing. Um, I know that uh, some of the things that you address and which are certainly familiar to anybody who's um, started a business or tried to do any kind of creative endeavor is um, uh, there are three things I think really that you, you touch on. One is lack of progress, feeling like you're not getting anywhere. The second is mistakes and messes. And the third is failures. And it seemed to me that one of the practices you talk about, it, they re it really speaks to those challenges. And that is the warrior practice. And the reason I think that they're linked, and, and I'm really interested to hear what you think about this, but the reason I think they're linked is that if you can maintain a warrior practice of basically staying in the game of being engaged with what you're doing, of maintaining your vision of what it is that you want to accomplish, that can help you through all those things. What are your thoughts on that? It's so interesting. I'm doing a lot of writing right at the moment about the person I'm calling the new hero, which is just really the person we're talking about who's able to weather these difficulties and do his or her work. Um, many times during the week, much of the week, uh, my wife and I babysit three of our grandkids in their ages seven, four, and four. And they have warrior stuff and hero stuff on the mind all the time. Yeah. You know, all of their, all the fairy tales and the books they read, and it's not just what, it's not just what's coming into them, but it's what's inside of them already. Mm. They want to be, they, they want to, you know, be jousting and they, they want to <laughs> go on adventures and, and they want to save the princess. They want these things from some deep place inside already mm. without mm. the world telling them that this is something of interest. Somewhere along the line, we lose that. I'm sure it's partly elementary school and drawing inside the lines, partly the requirements of growing up, partly this, partly that. And also partly the metaphors that uh, we're bound by, like the metaphor of progress, which is a particularly American metaphor. The transcendentalists of the 18th and 19th century wrote a lot about the idea of progress. It was their word and their, uh, their icon was the upward spiral. They thought that America would keep going up and up and up. And we've been stuck with this idea of progress forever for our whole, our whole collective consciousness. So this is all by way of saying, I think some of those cliches like the hero's journey or be the hero of your own story, some of those cliches I think come from a very deep place in us. And, and it's something to re-remember 
that we really do need a warrior practice. We really do need to be the hero of our own story. So much about life wants to um, squash us and damp us down and, and what have you. And we have to stand up to all of that individually. And uh, it, it's heroic work. It's, there, there's big kinds of heroic work if you're uh, the Russian composer Shostakovich trying to write a symphony while the siege of Stalingrad is going on. Well, there yeah. are things that are implausibly difficult. But then there are all of the smaller things that are not implausibly difficult. They're just difficult. And in order to get to them, I do think we need this warrior practice that I describe in the book. Mm. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that hero's journey um, kind of arising from something within ourselves. And I've had, I've incorporated an element of that in a process that I do with clients around their impact and helping to define that. And, um, the someone said to me, I think of the hero's journey as a particular as as kind of a particularly male construct. And can you please not use that terminology? And it really was surprised me because it's so ubiquitous. And of course, hero versus heroine is one adjustment you can make. But um, do you think it's gender specific? It it is, and that's why I argue against the traditional hmm. hero's journey. Mm -hmm. language. I do think that it's not just it's not just a gender bias, but the elements of the hero's journey about needing needing the wise mentor, the the the, the Yoda, needing the, that kind of person. The whole setup that every Disney movie and every action movie is based on, the whole setup is not reality. It's just a certain kind of setup that makes us feel good as we watch it. Hmm. And also, typically, the hero's journey ends in a way that allows us to feel good about what's transpired. To say this simply, the hero wins. In real life, heroes don't win. Many heroes are martyred. Yeah. So this new hero has, needs to be a mature person who's not, he or she, who's not following the mechanical, formulaic movement of the fairy tale hero's journey, but who's living like a hero in today's times. Mm. I love that. I uh, yeah, it was very thought provoking for me, and I've I've since shifted my uh, my approach that I use in in that program. But and I love that you keep bringing up maturity. I'm I'm a big fan of maturity. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's not always manifested in the in the way we think about creativity because we think it's even this myth around, well, if I do something I love, it won't feel like work. Well, sometimes it does feel like work. I mean, there's most of the time it feels like work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of brings up the question of the tension between a daily practice, which implies doing the same thing every day, routine, creativity. But you also talk about how the practice doesn't have to be the same mechanical steps. And I that felt very liberating for me to read. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, I, there are different ways to speak to the thing you just said. Let, let me speak to it in one way. And that's a distinction I hold between discipline and devotion. Mm. Uh, Pavarotti has a quote I always liked, which is people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion. And there's a big difference. Yeah. And there is a big difference. The doing the same thing the every day the same way, that's that sort of iron-fisted discipline thing. 
I think there was a character in a, in a German novel I once read who every day for lunch had the same cottage cheese with paprika. And, you know, if that, if that were ever violated, he'd probably destroy the world over that. Of course, it's a German novel. Of course, it was a German <laughs> that's novel. My, that's my family background. So I'm, either, I'm either, Heinrich Bohl, kind of either Heinrich Bohl or Gunter Grass, one or the other, I forget in this moment. But mm. that always struck me as the kind of discipline we're not after. It's right. not the cottage cheese and paprika, same time every day discipline. It's rather that we're in love with something. That's the devotion bit, that we're in love with something. And the manifestation of that love is different each day. Think of children. On, on one day, the manifestation of that devotion may be that you have to sit them down and have a hard conversation about their drinking. And another day, it may just be kisses and hugs. It's the same devotion, but the manifestation of it is going to be different depending on circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're talking about here. We need discipline, but we also need devotion. You can't really white knuckle life just through discipline. One of the ways people try to do that for um, creative and performing artists is to repeat themselves because they've in a discipline where they learn how to learn how to do something, make a certain kind of make radishes that look like radishes. So now they can make radishes till the end of time. So in a disciplined way, they make one radish painting after another, but then there's no growth there, there's no spark, there's no creativity, there's no joy. So it's that balancing act between the necessities of discipline, and that includes showing up every day, not missing days, and then the love part and the the synonyms of love, passion, curiosity, enthusiasm, all of those bits that allow you to, to do the work on a given day in exactly the way the work needs to be done on that day, and hopefully, even if it's hard, joyfully. Hmm. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, uh, it, it seems to, uh, this even this concept of devotion and staying with the practice is, um, and this is really the last thing I wanted to ask before we get to the rapid round, and that is, it seems like so much hinges of this hinges on self-trust, um, which I think is particularly important for entrepreneurs because the well-being of the company, the pe- and therefore the people that work for it, and the impact that a company can have, that a business can have, it requires self-trust on the part of the entrepreneur without getting into you know grandiosity and narcissism. That's right. Well, and then part of that is setting up the complete sentence. What are you trusting? You can't trust that you'll be successful. There's not a way to trust that but you can't trust that you'll show up each day. Mm -hmm. And that's the basic idea of daily practices. That is something a person can begin to trust. I'm going to show up every day. Mm. There are things we can't, we can't trust. God knows we can't trust the universe. We can't trust leaders. We can't trust this. We can't trust that. We have to define that sentence in a way that is truthful and that makes sense. And one of the things we can trust is our willingness to show up in a daily way to the things that are important to us. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Well, Eric, I always uh, end these interviews with a rapid round of three questions about impact. Are you are you ready to do those? Well, I don't know about speed. I'm not sure I'm up to speed, but I'll go <laughs> as fast as humanly possible. Here. <laughs> okay, great. All right. The first question is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Well, I, I think it's just that people find, many people find what I do 
not just useful, but life-changing. That's, that's the feedback I get. The avant-garde painters of the early 20th century, the Picassos and Brocks had a phrase, they wanted an audience of one. And what they meant was they were afraid that nobody would understand their Cubist painting. So if anyone got it, that was already a victory. Now, mm -hmm. of course, they had big e egos and they wanted an audience of a billion, but they still use that phrase, an audience of one. And I think that's the way I hold impact. I would like the things that I do to have a larger impact than just one person benefiting. But if just one person benefits, that works for me. Mm, that's great perspective. The second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Well, I want to say show up in a daily way, but I think I want to say something slightly different from that. I grew up right after, I was born right after World War II. World War II was the big event in my life. And everything about World War II, including the idea of resistance, resistance fighters, resistance, struck me even as a small child. I had the sense that I was going to spend my whole life resisting and being that kid in the fairy tale, the emperor's new clothes, who keeps pointing out the humbug. Hmm. So I think that, that, that that's the place, that's the thing that is most important to me throughout. And that's not... The showing up is the byproduct of having this desire or this mission to uh, expose humbug wherever the humbug may be. Hmm. That's great. Um, and the last question is, what's one piece of advice or an insight you'd share with someone who's thinking about how can I have impact? How can I affect people? In well, a this is way. a simple one, and this is a practical one. Many, many of the things we've chatted about are a little abstract. This is a practical one. Start your day doing something important before your, so to speak, real day begins. So if you want to be a political activist or, or creative person or, or build your business while <clears throat> still at your day job or whatever, spend the first hour of your day doing that work rather than hoping that you can get to it at the end of the day and we have no more neurons left. And by the end of the day, we're kind of half depressed already by the way the day is gone. And we can't really turn to real work. Most people can't turn to real work at the end of the day. Yeah. So my biggest tip is to first thing each morning, wake up and go directly to what's most important to do. Mm, that's a great approach. Well, Eric, thank you so much for everything you've shared today. So much of what you said has been very provocative for me and hopefully for the audience as well and thinking about how you can go about uh, your days in a much more conscious and deliberate way and and make the kind of choices to live out your life purposes and, and to speak in the terms that, that you do. So thank you for sharing that with us today. Thank you so much for having me. If people want to get in touch with you and uh, how do they reach out and, and where do they find your book? Books. I know there are many. Yeah, but... There are a lot of books. The best <laughs> place is to visit my site, ericmazel.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. And for this particular book, just visit Amazon. It's the power of daily practice. And for the book about curism, when we were talking about curism, the book associated with that is called Lighting the Way. That came out this year also, and that's available on Amazon and other places as well. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you, Eric, for the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. 
If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at workalchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment. It's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.